Hello, how are you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? Do you know what? I've been trying to record this intro for ages. Now, if you can hear in the background weather, it's not as bad as it was. Um, I've got uh, a load of workmen near my house. Uh, a lot. They've got to work, I understand. It's incredibly inconvenient when you're trying to record intros, outros, and voiceovers, and whatever at home, which is what we're all doing. But speaking of that, have you been out? Have you been to the pub yet? Yeah? How is it? I haven't been... Well, I say that I've been out for lunch, but I haven't been into an actual pub. That is happening this Sunday. I'm incredibly excited about it. Um, And a tad nervous, I must admit. But, hey, look, that's just the way it is. Um, I recorded this episode last week when I was in Wales. And it's the wonderful Kerry Godleman. Uh, And as we touch upon at the start of the episode, we were going to be doing this live in front of an audience at Latitude Festival last year. Uh, And it's taken us all this time to get it together. And we just thought, well, we can't do it in person. It's not going to happen. So we did it remotely and it was nothing short of joyous because she is brilliant. Now, you're going to know Kerry. If you don't know her as a stand-up comedian, do go and check her out. There's loads of stuff online. She's brilliant. She has this amazing knack as a comedian, that it's it's like a mate telling you stories. She's very, very natural with her comedy, and she's brilliant. Sorry, excuse my uh, voice. I'm a bit croaking. I was getting over a, a cold. It's like my body has uh, shut down a bit. So uh, forgive the croakiness. Um, but you'll also know Kerry from uh, Save Me with past brilliant guest Lenny James or Derek with, again, past uh, and fantastic guest, uh, Carl Pilkington. If you haven't gone back and listened to Lenny James's whopper of an episode, I think it, it nearly came in at three hours. We had to separate it into two. Carl's been on twice. Again, hilarious catching up with Carl, as always. But Kerry also has a new show out this week. It's on Acorn TV. It's called Whitstable Pearl. If you've ever been to Whitstable, then obviously you're going to be watching it because it's such a beautiful place to be. Um, And you know it's got a stamp of guarantee because Kerry's in it and she's class, as you're going to find out right now. This is the T-Shot Podcast with Kerry Godleman. Enjoy. I shall see you at the end. We were actually supposed to be doing this. In front of an audience. I know. At, at Latitude In Latitude, which may or may not, but not looking likely, happen this year. Let's Look, let's face it, Carrie, it's not going to happen. <laughs> Don't say it's it not, out loud. It's not, it's not right now, is it? Come on, let's no. be sensible about it. No, this. I know, but they haven't cancelled, and when they don't cancel, there's still hope. Yes, but, uh, um, yeah, there's hope and there's... Delusion. Um, there's delusion, and as much as I want to get back to talking to people in front of a big crowd. I just don't think no. now is the right time. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. 
But I was talking. Yeah, well, no, go on. But no, that, but. well, just sad. Just a little, you know, a little salute to sadness. And I know it's the sensible thing, but I just, you know, I dared to believe the roadmap, roadmap to normality. I, I dared to believe. But there's been enough sadness. I'm not into sadness anymore. I can't be arsed with it. I'm just trying to think of as much as I, as much as I, I wanna, I wanna get back to, you know, going to restaurants and going to the pubs and seeing friends and. See, I'm not that bothered about that. I'm not bothered about restaurants and pubs. It's gigs, stand-ups, just gone. I mean, I haven't done a gig. For- from God knows, I can't remember the last gig I did. It's things like that. It's gathering. I love festivals. I really enjoy them. Really gutted. I was really excited about it this year. But speaking of stand-up, I was talking to a stand-up friend of mine and she's got a gig at the weekend on in, on Saturday. Is it in a speakeasy? Uh, I, I know. I think it's. I think it's legit. <laughs> it's loud. I mean, I mean, maybe we'll go back to the days of the speakeasy. I know that would be quite. Fun. I'm kind of into that. Mm, yeah, like dogging, like dogging gigs. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I mean, it's that's that the crossover. I never thought I would clandestine my... comedy in car parks. Can I just say I'm not putting my name to that. I lived. I lived in New York years ago. Yeah. Um, for like half the year, and I used to want to. Because you know when you're watching films when you're younger, and yeah. you, you know you go around that back, that side alley, and someone lets you in a door. There's no sign there, and you go walk down the stairs, and there's a band playing mm. there. I want and it's that. This very. I want that. That's yeah. what I was always searching for. The dogging thing, not so much. <laughs> no, Don't, no, no. Not, it was a very I'm upsetting comparison. <laughs> <laughs> But do you think? What do you think about the stand-up scene? Is that is is it is it going to be such small baby steps that it's going to take another know. year? I don't know. I mean, I really worry for it as an industry. It's it was one of the first to stop, and it looks like it's going to be the one of the last to come back. Mm. And some of those clubs are in big trouble, you know, and they may never come back. And it's really tragic. And I'm sure as a as an art form or medium, it will come back because it's such a pared down thing anyway it's just a human talking to other humans essentially you don't need it's not got high production values has it craig is this cheap it's cheap to throw it together but um those clubs you know they're businesses and they're they're really struggling and some of them i mean the majority of them jotted around the uk scotland Island everywhere. Yeah, they're tiny little places. Yeah, I, I mean they're what, petri dishes the, for a virus. Well, they are. Aren't they? They're like primary schools. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, mean, I remember I, I used to live in North London, and the King's Head, which oh, I'm yeah. sure you've played at a down great there, room. is a very small, sticky, sweaty, fantastic room. Yeah. And right now, as much as we long to go and laugh. It's not the place you want to be. Is no, it? it's not. It's not realistic at the moment. And people are doing really interesting, creative things like Zoom gigs, and you know, a lot has come out of all this that just demonstrates uh, adaptability and creativity and all that stuff. But they're just not the same. You know, they're not. No, of course not. I mean, it's a bit like what we're doing now, and we had a little faff trying to get this sorted as ever. And mm. we've both been. You've been doing. I'm sure you've been doing. Loads of press and interviews and things like that, and I've been doing. I've been trying to carry on with this the best I can, but it's not the same. No, I would. I would love to be if I weren't sat with you in front of 
a crowd of a few hundred people than me and you'd be sat in a cafe having a, you know, a cream tea and looking each other in the eyes and not... Have you found it's changed the tone of them? Like, there's... I mean, there were loads of brilliance. Like, didn't you do Nicole Kidman? I mean, that was... That was possible yeah. because of all this. Yeah, that was. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, definitely. And there were some she was like a, she radio. Was in yeah, like I'd noticed the other day on the news quiz, they're getting like international acts on there now, which would never have happened. You know. No. So there's definitely some things that are happening that wouldn't have happened. True. Yeah, but I still, as much as I've, I've, and, I, and I've, I'm sure I've said this before, I have found it really, really difficult. I didn't yeah. like it at first. No. And I had to take a bit of time off because I was so used to, because I'm so fascinated and I love human beings and I want them sat with me. Mm. And I wanted to, you know, there's something that you get by looking into the whites of somebody's eyes yeah. that you don't get by what we're doing now, as no. much as it's lovely to see you and talk it's to you. It's not the same though, is it? It's just not the same. I don't want. I don't want to carry on doing this. I can't wait to, you know, go for a walk in the countryside if that's what we have to do. Yeah. Or go for a, go for a walk around the city with microphones and do it. I, I, I'd I'd sooner adapt that way. And you forward. finding like do you listen to podcasts as well? Lots of different ones. I do listen to lots of different. Can you ones, tell yeah. that they're being done like this? Do you think as a you know, as a listener, as well as a maker of podcasts, they're tonally different. They are slightly. I mean, the sonically, the production values are so high now and we're, we've all got amazing producers who look after us and make it sound mm. like we're in the same room. You can't tell. Sometimes no, you really can't. You can't really tell. You can't really tell. And sometimes I'll, I'm listening to... Sometimes I listen to story podcasts. There's a great This Is Love this week about a woman swimming and she came across a baby whale and, you know, I urge you to listen to it. It's oh, really beautiful. that does yeah, sound so great. I'll, I'll send you a link. Oh. Um, but, you know, I, it's not just full interview podcasts that you have to do, but, you know, Mark Maron's been carrying on. Yeah. And you, you, you genuinely can't tell. He can. He doesn't like it. I know he doesn't because he wants them. He wants the connection, yeah. He wants the connection, as mm. we all do. Yeah. Um, but, you know... We've got to carry on. What are you going to do? You've got to create content, Craig. The, the, you've got to create content. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? But Make Carrie, content. It didn't, it, it didn't always... It was, was it always about stand-up for you? No, I went to drama because school before I did I was going to say, because they don't teach stand-up, as far as I know, they don't teach a stand-up course at Rose Bruford, do no, they? No, they don't, no. I did always love stand-up. I always mm. loved it from when I was a kid. And I, but I wouldn't have dreamed of doing it. I wouldn't have known how to go about it. So, bizarrely, being an actor is a legitimate career. <laughs> you, you say that. I know, quite. Well, commas. that's funny, isn't it? That compared to stand-up, it is a legitimate career. It's got a vocational training path and all that stuff. So I went down that road because I, would, I wouldn't have known how to become a stand-up when I was, you know, 16. I wouldn't and have also, had anything to say anyway. No, but also at 16, you wouldn't have thought, and surely other people would have said, that's not a viable career. No, absolutely that's, no, not. No, that's, that's just what Richard Pryor does. No, and I, he's very good at that. Yeah, absolutely. And also when you're really, really young, you just, I just don't think you're ready for that. It was something that I came to a lot later. Although actually young people do do it more now, I suppose because the internet has changed 
stand up a bit. You know, some people can come through from YouTube or whatever. There are different routes now for, for young people. But, um, yeah, I I didn't do it until I graduated. About I'd been out of college about four odd years before I started stand up. And what prompted you to start? Uh, frustration with, you know, the, the business and that acting and stuff like that. Were you, were you hit with a lot of walls? Mm, I, well, retrospect, I, I felt like I was, but actually I wasn't met with as many as some of my mates. Like, I did get an agent out of... You know how it can be where there's that horrible night where some get agents and some don't. Oh, I know, awful. I know, it was a horrible time, and um, I got one. And so I did get odds and sods, but it just was never enough. It just never felt like enough. Like, the odd scene on, you know, the knock, or the odd scene on casualty or whatever but it was and then a couple of nearlies for sort of bigger gigs but I never quite I just I don't know and I started doing a lot of forum theatre like training stuff where you know you go into whether it be schools I did loads of it in schools but, right. but I also did a lot of it like for corporate you know for banks which is kind of like legs akimbo you know like just sort of teaching people not to be wankers in the workplace sort of stuff yeah I know but we all have to go you know it's all steps up the ladder yeah and, and know, i did really like... love it i actually really enjoyed it and that was the baby step towards stand-up for me because i was doing live performance it was seat of your pants in a way because you had to flex there was no sort of script there were bullet points but it wasn't rock solid like lines right you'd open up so you'd, there'd be no fourth wall so you'd be talking to the audience quite you know you'd use humor because obviously it's a good tool to use in those sort of environments and I thought actually if these all had had a couple of beers and the lights were dimmer this is a gig you know if we're not a million miles away from stand-up like now so that step towards stand-up wasn't as scary for me did you think that at the time yeah was that when the seeds were sown yeah because or I stop. I'd always loved stand-up and I was finding myself holding forum theatre workshops you know just holding rooms and talking to delegates or audience members or whatever you want to call them. And I just felt comfortable being myself in front of an audience talking directly. And I just think, actually, incrementally, I'm getting towards this thing called stand-up comedy, whatever it is. So I was never like... A lot of people always think, oh, if you're an actor, you're going to do character comedy. But that just didn't ever... That was never on the table for me. I just always did me chatting. Yeah. But also, it's that thing that... What's changed now, I've found, is that you can be an actor. And back in the day, it was like, you're an actor and that's what you do. Mm. Or you're a stand-up, that's what you do. Or you're a presenter, that's what you mm. do. Now it's like, wait a minute, you can be a stand-up comedian, but you can also go into do some heavy drama and it's accepted. Yeah. You can be a stand-up, you can go and present something, you can be a broadcaster, you can do... You can do people are more, much well, more accepting. Like, it's like the Renaissance, Craig. It's extraordinary. <laughs> From dogging to the Renaissance <laughs> with Carrie Godman We can just turn our hands to all these things. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember when I first left college, I was getting mostly dramas... And I remember thinking, well, I'm, I'm quite funny. I like comedy. I want to do comedy. I remember saying to my then agent, how do you get into comedy? And she, she, I suppose, was pretty straight with me and went, you don't really engineer your career. Not many actors get to engineer it. You get what you get. And it sort of just went that way. And then when I started doing stand-up, I um, got mostly comedy. I was sort of being seen mostly for comedy because I was starting to be seen for that. And then I was not doing any drama anymore. And then I think after Derek, because that was sort of co comedy drama, 
then mm. I started being lucky enough to straddle both. And now I'm pretty much, I do comedy and drama, which I'm yeah. really chuffed about. But it's taken a bloody long time <laughs> to get but both. It do, but it does take a long time. You know, mm. you were talking before about... Uh, a younger stand-up, what you said yourself, you said, well, I wouldn't have anything to talk about. Mm. But, you know, life experience does go a long way. Yeah. So the, and, and we all know, especially what's been going on, there's there's great darkness and great humour and sometimes they, they, they go hand in hand. Yeah. Now I feel like I'm coming out the other end and I think, oh, I'm too old to be a stand-up now. But when I was young, I was too young. Now I'm like, oh, I'm too old. <laughs> I don't... It's a youth voice, you know, you need to be a edgy young... I, sometimes I don't know if it's women do it, but they're always somehow not quite right. They're like, I'm neither too young or I'm too old or you sort of have that imposter syndrome thing. Do, do you genuinely think that? I do worry about it a little bit because it's such a youthful thing, stand-up. It's quite a, you know, it's it requires a lot of drive and, I don't know, so you get tired, you just get a bit, your energy goes down a little bit, doesn't it? Is it? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, not Obviously. in a way that's like, I'm sort of, but you just don't have that hunger like you do in your 20s and 30s. I just felt so driven when you're younger. And now, I don't know, my kids are a bit older and the pandemic's taken its time more into my embroidery and sourdough at the moment. Who, who isn't? I mean, <laughs> the banana the banana bread ship sailed. No one does that anymore. I know. The thought of going back on the road and, like, hammering it on the gigs front is, like, seems like a million miles away. Well, I was going to say, especially when a family's involved, mm. as, a, as a single person, it must be bloody knackering. But when you've got... The Kids, family yeah. to to tip the scales, and it's like, well, you can't go. Like I was talking to Sarah Millican the other week, yeah. and she's going off and doing something like eighteen months. Her tours are massive. Oh, massive! Mm. Because she's got that backlog of all that. Mm. And then I was talking to Joe Lysett the other week about when he's going back. And he went, well. I don't know yet, but I'm not doing anything like what Sarah would be doing. No. But, but how is that? How, or certainly how was that for you when you were hammering it with, 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 with a family as well? Well, I'm, it was hard work. I mean, it genuinely was hard work. But, I, you know, my husband's brilliant and he's always really encouraged me to do it and been really supportive. And I definitely couldn't have had both without him. Like, he definitely facilitated, yeah. you know, the fact... Like, there were times when I was like, I can't, and he'd just say, well, you can, and it encouraged me to do it and has um, has been a bit of a rock with all of that. So, I mean, it's it get, sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's easy. It sort of fluctuates. Now they're sort of older, it's easier to go away, you know. What do you mean that uh, emotionally for you? No, I mean, literally, time-wise. Like, you can be right. away and they're a bit older so I can FaceTime. There's nothing worse than trying to talk to an under-four-year-old on the telephone. But, you know, now they can chat and you can connect with them remotely. Um, yeah. And, again, guilt, just all that parental guilt about being away working. Uh, it's hard to surmount that sometimes. You're like, it's OK to go away and work. That's my job. This is my job, you know. And also, we have to provide. yeah. Yeah. And I always say, I always say to my little boy who's nearly ten, the great thing is I might be away for this small, small, relatively small chunk of time. Mm. Think about some other parents who are doing you know Monday leaving to Friday yeah, and they before leave before they've before, school. Yeah, yep, yeah, 
and they come back at like six, half six, seven o'clock at night. Possibly may do the bath time or story time. There and are then... lots of different, you know, arrangements, and yeah. that's okay. You know, it's fine as long as you you're just open and honest with the kids. But it's just, you know, it's funny as well because now my daughter's sort of she's interested in it all. So I'm like, don't, don't do it, don't become an actor. It's you know, but that's silly because it has been. I've been really lucky and it's been lovely. So, but it's funny kind of parenting a kid that sort of seems to want that kind of life as well. You're like, oh, God. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Mm. I mean, what do... Because I, I don't know about your background, but we will get onto that in a second. But, I, you know, I didn't come from any of that. This was no. all very new to... to Me either. ..to mine. What, what were your parents my, up to? My dad is a violin maker, which is a really odd job. But he left school, like, at 16 and walked into an apprenticeship in the... 60s and has been doing it ever since so as, as a violin yeah, maker. as a violin maker it's such an oh odd my god um there's a proper word a luthier or something i can't there's a proper word for it and i, I should learn it shouldn't i luthier. i mean it's it's, um, an, it's a beautifully i know it's mental although he doesn't skill. make instruments anymore he hasn't made them for a long time he makes most of his money from restoration uh and my mum's had loads of different jobs. So when I was a kid, she just sort of did all sorts. A lot of market research recruitment was her main um, bread and butter. And then right. when I was older and sort of late teens, you know, becoming an adult, she trained as an Alexander teacher. As in Alexander Technique? Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. When I started, when I, started, I got given an Alexander Technique scholarship. Oh, wow. When I moved to London. Really? Uh, for drama school. Yeah, because I'm really tall. And um, I was wasn't very confident at all. So they gave me because I was always walking with like a stoop, like, and they went, "You're apologising for your height. Stop apologising for your height, and you will now." Yes. Be given... I mean, it's the only scholarship I got. I didn't get a singing one. I know that. But um... but now you have amazing posture. <laughs> but now, but now I've got great posture. Oh, yes, it's a great thing. I mean, it's I, fantastic. I must confess, I'm every time I see my mum, she's like, "You could do with a few lessons," and I'm not as. Um, you know, I'm not as on it as I should be, but when I have had lessons, it is it is very subtle, but it's very good. And very, there's something um, that I went back to with my little boy, certainly with, I hate to go back to the year that we've had, but um, there is something very calming mm. and meditative uh, about Alexander Technique. Yeah. If you just sort of... Get some books under your head. Get your semi-supine. Get get in your semi-supine. <laughs> yeah, and just start and breathing. And just drop your shoulders it's... and imagine two little chicks under your arms. Then you don't want to drop them, but you don't want to squash them. Exactly. And you just got to hold yourself appropriately. The string at the top of the head. And lengthen it out. It's yeah. beautiful. Lengthen and Something... widen. It's very subtle and very beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, and my mum was really passionate about it when she discovered it and trained a little later in life when her kids were sort of more independent and didn't need her so much. And how was school for you, Kerry? All right. I mean, I went to a comp in West London in North Holt, a same school my dad went to, funnily enough, although right. it was a secondary modern when he went there and it was a comprehensive when I went there. And it was fine and I sort of made some lovely friends and picked up a few GCSEs and... Um, but I, I wouldn't say it was like a great school or anything. I don't have a kind of like, oh, the motto will be with me forever. Yeah. It just, you know, it wasn't, it was a bit like Grange Hill, really. 
what, did you enjoy it, or was it? Yes and just... no. There were some good times and bad times. I mean, like I always enjoyed. I did all the drama and all that stuff, and we did shows and things like that. And um, yeah, I did. I didn't have an awful time, but there were episodes that were challenging. You know, that as I think there are for a lot of kids in school. Well, I think for everyone. Yeah, yeah. I think schools. I mean, it's interesting again, sort of parenting teenagers. It's sort of you have these weird flashbacks where you just think, oh god, it is hard. It is a challenging time. Yeah. All just all that peer stuff and hoping to be with the right group or not fall in with the wrong group and all just it's just so intense so I do remember all of that but I sort of navigated it and humor was useful you know I was always sort of dicking about and was the class clown and things like that so that's always a handy skill isn't it sense of humor I think it is because it helps with it does help with so it diffuses tension (laughs) It really does. I mean, it gets you into a lot of trouble. Mm. Yeah, I was I mean, in trouble if, a lot. If, yeah, I mean, if you're not skillful with it. I mean, you could be very skillful with it, but it still could get you into a lot of trouble. Yeah. But it also could diffuse the situations mm. if, if there's tensions raising. Yeah. And I know it's such a stereotype, but, you know, you make bullies laugh and you can kind of get away with yeah. quite a lot. Yeah, definitely. No, I don't remember... F- Humour was definitely something I was aware of its value by the time I was in secondary school, you know, without a doubt. But um, I don't... I can't, it's a funny sort of... I'm relatively ambivalent about my school time. I felt more passionate about later, like when I... I youth theatre. I was, like, really into youth theatre. When did you get into that? I was 16, kind of that around that time. And then I went to, like, a little local youth theatre group. And that's what I think kind of excited me a lot more. Because I already by then was interested in all that stuff and there wasn't loads of it at my school. I mean, we did a bit and the drama teacher was lovely and she was very encouraging, but I, I already was quite keen on it. So. And, it's, and it's funny, isn't it, because when you're doing um, drama at school, you can be, as you say, really keen and very passionate but other people have taken it as a DOS. Yeah, totally. Or they want to show off to the... the guys want to show off to the girls. Exactly. And, like, oh, and you God, just want to, don't want to be a dick. If you try too hard, you'll just look like a dick. So you have to sort yeah. of navigate all that. That's why I could be... I could sort of throw myself into it a bit more at youth year. Because you're with like-minded souls. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then just... you can allow yourself to be a bit more vulnerable and be mm. a dick, you know. Yeah. And it's celebrated. <laughs> but it is, that's... But to learn how to be vulnerable in that environment mm. at, at such a young age when, you know, everything's changing, you're changing, your body's changing. Yeah. It's, it's it, massive. You have to, it's huge. It's so huge and it's so weird witnessing it now with my daughter who's 14. It's like she's right, right in it. She's right in all that, yeah. you know. And it's like, wow, I don't know what, I don't know what to, I don't know what, other than just be there. And say, I'm here, I'm here if you... What, you, they've got to, you can't go over it, you can't go under it, you've got to go through it, haven't you? What can you do? And also, it's really hard to steer it yeah. in any way. No, because it's, it's like you're going, I'm not, I can't control it, I can hope and wish yeah. for you and be supportive and yeah. be there. And equip them with to, what you hope are the you. life skills to, to deal with it. I mean, that was what's so heartbreaking about lockdown is because it really hit those young people, because they need that experience and socialisation and all that stuff. That's part of development, of human development, and they're Absolutely. missing key stuff, you know. 
Especially at that age. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know how, right. you know, how strict a lot of young people were, really, realistically. Well... What can you do? Ev- evidently they weren't. No. It was funny, you know, we went for a walk one day in the other lockdown and my son was, like, mucking about in the bushes in this park and he went in and out and he went, Mum, there's two women in those bushes having a bottle of wine. It's like people are just hiding in bushes, having a social life. What did he say? Needs must, son. Needs must. That's <laughs> yeah. Don't judge them. <laughs> it, it was me and your auntie Brenda the other week, but shh, don't tell anybody. Socially distanced. In a bush. We we did have hand sanitizer on the wine, yeah. so it's fine, don't yeah. worry. And was it when you were getting more passionate about the youth theatre, mm. were you thinking that yeah, this could be something for you as a career? Or were you still quite open to other things? No, I was I I was pretty up for it by then. I really wanted yeah. to do it. And a lot of the people that went to my youth theatre did go to Rose Bruford. That's how I know. That's how I heard of Rose Bruford. Oh, really? Yeah. So a couple of them were like going there. So they would have been two, three years older than me, and that's how I heard of it. And it kind of fed into the sort of culture or the values of my UCETA Rose Bruford. Sort of, I don't know what it's. I don't know what you call it, but the vibe of that college did feed into the sort of vibe of my youth theatre as well. Because we used to do a lot of, like, community theatre, and Rose Bruford used to do a lot of that. They had a different strand that was, like, community theatre strand. And yeah. Like. So I kind of liked the sound of all that. I was quite keen to do all that. And also, from what I gather, Rose Bruford, there's very much a, a creative process of, right, you're going to make yeah. this piece of theatre. Absolutely. You're going to get out, you're going to be you're doing You're devising, things. and, you're, yeah. you know, it's real kind of, let's do the show in the van kind of sort of yeah, theatre. Exactly. And that appealed to me. And I think sometimes, looking back, that probably sowed the seeds a bit for stand-up as well. You know, that kind of just very makeshift, make-a-show sort of theatre, you know, really. Well, because there's, there's quite a few people that trained there that then went on to, to stand-up. Oh, and really? Come, and come back into it. Yeah, I think so. Ah, because I'm aware of that. Um, I might be wrong, and I should know because I've interviewed him, but I'm sure Rhys Shearsmith weren't there. He was Bretton Hall, wasn't he? Bretton Hall, that's yeah. the thing. That's, well, I've similarly, just... um, yes, I, Bretton Hall was another college I was curious about and interested in as well because same vibe that you make your own work and you can... Very, very yeah. s- similar vibe, yeah. So I, that's how, from my youth theatre, that's how I sort of... I did try for Central and um, a couple of other colleges, but I my heart was set on Rose Bruford, so I was glad to go there. And were you going there at quite a young age? Were you going there at no, 18? No, no, I went at 20. I retook my GCSEs because I balls that up and then I had a yeah. year out and then I did A-levels... So I kind of, you know, I didn't push straight through. I did. It. I went when I was twenty. Did you feel that was the right time for you? Yeah, I did. There weren't that many. There was only one or two in my year group that were eighteen. Most people were over twenty, twenty-one, and it, similar to the stand-up, it felt like I'd kind of lived a little bit. I th- by the time I went, I really, really wanted to be there. Like I had absolute certainty that I wanted to be there. Yeah, um, I, I remember when. So I was just on the cusp of 18 when I moved from Blackpool to So you London. were young to go oh, to yeah, college. Just, Where did you go? I went to Mountain View. Ah, uh, so that's I was young. Just, I just wanted, I, it was, I mean, looking back on it, really super young. There was Exciting, a guy, though. There was a guy, oh, tremendously excited. Yeah. I'm in I can't London. imagine. <laughs> 
from I'm in London from the seaside town. It's yeah. like crazy. Yeah. I fell asleep on the tube for the first time I ever got on it because it just sort of rocked me like a baby. I woke up at Heathrow. I should have been in Wood Green. It was oh my a nightmare. God. Um, but there was a guy in our year, and I, he might not have been 27, but I felt that he was really old. He yeah. might have been just like 24. We had a few of those gone, mature <gasps> students, and they were like yeah. so grown up, and they probably were late 20s. Which is nothing still so young. I know. It's a love. But, it's a love. I really enjoyed it. And again, it's one of those things some people do and some people don't. But I did. I really had a good time. And I'm still good mates with a lot of people I trained with. And I still use the things I learned. I, st- I just think of it as a really precious time. Does it still, does it, and this comes up quite a lot, I think, with certain with training. Um, and I know people train on the job and we all we carry on yeah, training you're still all learning, the time yeah. because you never stop. But there's some stuff that you go, oh, I haven't thought about that for years. Uh, I don't know where it is. I must have put it in what, one part of my brain or I've put it in yeah. that sort of makeshift backpack with all these tools in that I've got. And I've got, oh, my God, I remember this now. There's yeah. something clicked in well, me. Well, it doesn't, you don't remember it formulaically, but you just know it instinctively, don't you? You just yeah. assimilate what you've mm. learned. And if you have to explain it, it's like, oh... How do I explain it? But it's in there. It's yeah. somewhere in there. Um, and that worked for me, you know, but I don't feel like, oh, it's for every, It's not necessarily for everyone. No, I don't think it is. And also, as we've found over the years, there's so many different routes yeah. to go down now. I mean, I training. just, again, same as what I said earlier about the stand-up, I just didn't know other routes. It was just what you know when you know it. And that's, you know, as I say, I went to drama, uh, I went to youth theatre, and that's where I heard some of the older members talking about this thing called drama training. And so I did th- that, you know. I did try for uni, actually. I did, because if I didn't get into college, I was, back up was going to be uni. Um and looked at John Moores and some other drama degrees. But so I, that, was, that would have been another route? It would have been another route, yeah. And I would have been open to that as well, and those courses look great. And Reading used to have a film studies course. I was quite excited about film, because I was doing film studies A-level, so I was quite into that as well. But you know when you know what you want, and I did want to go yeah. to Rose Bruford, so all those other things, they were plan Bs, but my plan A was Rose Bruford. And when you've when you, you're in that mindset, nothing can really sway you from it. It's Not like, really. Right. I mean, no. You can take a few knocks, but at that age, you just go, "Well, I'll just take it on a chin and I'll just carry on." Yeah, and we were so lucky as well because we didn't have to, you know, pay for it. I got a grant, mm-hmm. so yeah, I got a grant. I think I was on the last. So what was I? Ninety. I went at ninety. Four graduated oh, in ninety-seven. Same, same time yeah. as me. So, so I was we, ninety-four I think, to ninety-seven. We were on the last year that I think we were on the last year that got a grant. I, well, even, I, I had to appeal. At one oh, really? Point. Yeah, it's got knocked back. Bloody hell! I mean, actually, that was one of the reasons why I really wanted to go to Rose Bruford as as well as all the other stuff we've talked about is because it was a degree and it wasn't a diploma, and you did get you did get automatic. A grant. Yeah, yeah. But Rose Bru- Rose Bruford was one of the only training courses that was a degree yeah, course at that time. Everywhere else was a diploma course. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it did and it, mean you got a bit of money. Yeah, and it was. I think it was only a year after, so in 98, I think everything changed to a degree, degree. course. Yeah. yeah. I do remember which that, is, bloody hell. Which is, which is so helpful for everybody now. But even going back years ago, in like, you know, 94, even to 97 and even after, there, there weren't different routes in. There wasn't such things as that street casting that 
people like Shaheen Bay do and Des mm. Hamilton do now and you find your little Thomas Turgooses for This Is England. It just, it yeah. didn't happen. It didn't happen well, like it's that. Sort of, Ken Loach did a bit of it, didn't he? But I mean, there's always you, been some people that do it. I know, but it's very few and far between for, yes. you know. Oh, it's not a route if, in. It's not, it, was, it wasn't a route no, in. I think it is, is it? a route in now. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't, same as stand-up, I wouldn't know how I'd do it now. You only know the way you know um, at the time you do it. But I, I, if I was 18 again, I genuinely don't, the world's changed completely and I don't know if I would bother with drama school now or if I would have had the guts to do stand-up. I would have done some on YouTube videos and put them out there and see if they get any heat and all that. You know, you just do things differently. Yeah, but everything, you know, everything changes and the way that we promote or work changes all the time. Exactly. And with regard to training and education, it has really changed. Since, I mean, you know, even GCSE drama now, like my husband's writing an essay on it because he's doing a diploma, an education diploma, and it's like it's all, it's not even a practical course anymore. You know, so if you are really into acting and drama and you want it as a career and then you go down that road of doing it as a GCSE, that's your starting point, it's all written. It's all written work. It's all been changed. So it's all a bit sort of strange and the training process isn't the same as when we were kids. Well, I find, I mean, I do find that very odd. It's but I remember, crap. I remember I had to, I had to do some written work. Oh yeah, there was always a bit of written work, but there was a lot of practical. Oh yeah, a lot of practical. Well, now I mean, there's it, hardly it, any, pra- I don't think there is any practical now. You're not marked on it. You're not marked on your practical? No, GCSE dramas completely changed since we were doing it. It's changed in the last 10 years. Can you explain a bit more to me? Well, I, do you know what? I should, he should be the one... Because it's all kind of a bit contentious. I think it's all since Gove. Quite a lot has changed since Gove was the education secretary. Wow. So he changed, like, the English syllabus and he... It, and I think even now, Gavin Williams is still trying to... I mean, he's always trying to cut the arts, isn't he? He's trying to do it literally as we yeah, speak. So absolutely. They're trying to just pair all these creative qualifications back. And the year that they changed the... Uh, testing process of drama from a practical to a written, it's a written qualification now, uh, the the uptake, like, halved or something mad. Like, it hugely plummeted. Obviously. Yeah, because these kids, like you say, some kids do it as a DOS, but some kids do it because they want to do a practical course. Mm. They, you know, they, they, we have different learning styles and different skills or whatever, and it's a practical thing. So it's saying sport as a written subject is mad. Well, exactly. I was oh, I was thinking about you know right. I'm t- I've got a um, a ballet exam. Yes, and I'm and gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna write you five pages on pirouettes. What I'm doing? Yeah, it's it's mad. But it's like some people can't put pen to paper and convey no. that. Their skill is to show you. Well, similarly, when I was at college, some of those people that went there. They didn't do the coursework and they didn't necessarily get the two ones or the first degrees, but they they got a training and they got an agent. Do you know what I mean? Like, you don't have to have a piece of paper that says, I can write a dissertation to get an acting career off the ground. No, not at all. No, it's mad. It's really, it, it does worry me that these arts courses are being so carved up. I find it very sad as yeah. well. Especially because when you've got kids that are kind of, creative and into that stuff and you think and also it's backward thinking because these industries are multi-billion making you know they're not like they're not hokey 
businesses, are they? They make a lot no. of money for this country. Our, our um, theatre industry and our film... Well, not so much film, but telly, it's it's makes a lot of money. And there's a lot of people that work in those industries. Absolutely. And, you know, we've gone back to it again, but where would we have been without content throughout this past year? Oh, my year? God. I mean, my it's all about God, content. We'd have... Our mental health would have been in a far more brittle state than what it already is if it wasn't mental. for escapism of what we've had. It's so funny since all this, because stand-up has sort of taken over the last few years, and then I never thought I'd use the phrase, thank God I've got acting to fall back on, but I've been acting more this last year since the pandemic than I have really ever. It's just because there's no stand-up, so I'm acting. And also the safety measures that they've mean put you in can place film. to get back to working, and also the joy. And this is not uh, this is not me and Carrie going, "Oh my God, look at us, we're working, and it's so great." But the joy and respect that people have had to come yeah. back to set. Yeah. It has been like going back twenty years and going, oh, "This is my first job," and everybody's oh, so, so fucking happy. grateful. And happy. I'm not just talking about the actors. I'm talking oh, about crew, everybody, everyone. the whole crew, the whole ensemble, yeah. everybody that makes that show what absolutely. it is. Absolutely, it's just so ham and so respectful. Yeah, absolutely. It has been, you know, a real review on what we take for granted. Yeah, I think it has. I mean, I don't know. I've always been felt quite lucky, not just to work, but I've always the people that I've been lucky enough to work with. Me too. I've, I've really- always felt lucky. I've never worked with any moaners. No. I've worked with a lot of moaners. No. I've been, I've had, I've just worked with some really lovely, lovely people. Yeah, who really love what they do. Yeah. And now more than ever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's an absolute joy. And so that's, right, that's the lovely actor community taken care of. We all know that. <laughs> they're, they're all sound and there's no wankers in there. <laughs> I mean, we can. This will be maddening again. to listen to that someone's looking for a bitch. They're like, well, come on, dish it. <laughs> <laughs> this is not that podcast. And we'll, we'll edit it all out anyway when we do have a bit. So anyway, it's fine. <laughs> but what is. What was stepping into the stand up world like? Because I, I, I have mixed. I, and this. I've got no frame of reference on this. Uh huh. Even though I've worked with quite a few stand-ups and I know a lot of stand-up comedians, yeah, I can't imagine going into it as a newbie and it being a welcoming environment. Oh, I may be wrong. I I found it to be a welcoming. I mean, like in the same way we've just done a big love in about actors being lovely and great or whatever. My experience really of stand-ups is similar. Like I felt like more. I felt almost more among my people when I found stand-up. I found like I was with the right tribe somehow. Uh, and and I started 2002, so there weren't even that many women. Still, it was a bit crappy for, for women. I mean, like... Well, you, I was going to I was gonna go on to ask yeah, about that. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't brilliant. So there were a few dickheads, but I'd say the, the vast majority were fine and welcoming. Jeez, there's always a few dickheads. They're everywhere. Uh, <laughs> the few, not the many, but just the scatterings. It's but um, but I, I, I felt. I mean, the gigs itself are scary, and some of the, mm. you know, some of the rooms were scary. But it was never the comics that made me feel unwelcome. I always felt, as I say, I felt like part of something I belonged to straight away. Do you think? Do you think that's? Do you think that's something that you were giving out as 
you as a human being, though? Well, so it's, there is no training for stand-up, but there is a sort of trajectory. So you start on the open mic circuit, and that is, you know, a kind of... It's mad when I look back on it. Have you ever been to an open mic gig? I've been to a few that have been a bit like a bear pit. Yeah, they're either bear pits or they're caring the community sometimes. I mean, like, you don't know quite what's going on. And they're Mm. really creative and they're uh, quite... Oftentimes the audience is made up of people that are, like, friends and family of the acts. And so there's quite a sort of warm... You start in... You know, my first ever gig was, like, a college... I did City Lit. I did a course at City Lit and it was just... We did a little show at the end. So... You you don't go straight into headline in the comedy store. Like, there is a very step-by-step sort of trajectory to it. And then you do the competitions, the new act competitions, and if you're lucky, you'll get to the semi-finals. And then if you're... Do you know what I mean? So you kind of ease in. And then you get, like, 10-minute spots at a club weekend and see if you can sort of manage that. And they don't tell the audience that you're a new act, so you just see if you can survive without anyone giving you a pity laugh or whatever. So it's kind of, it's it's slow. I felt like, when I started, I felt like if I threw myself at it and treated it like an apprenticeship, I'd give it a good four years, three to four years of just right. powering through, like, the open mic circuit and the new act circuit and build it up and build it up and build it up. Mm. And it took that long. It did take that long, really. But I just decided I was going to really throw myself at it. I mean, that's... A lot of hard work. It was a lot of hard work doing, and a lot of mileage. You really are. I was going to say, because yeah. you're bombing around everywhere yeah. just to go and do a five-minute spot. Yeah, for, and there's for, no for money in it, you know. Nothing at all no. at first, is it's there? It's a labour of love, it really is. And, and it, I do feel like I joined a cult. I just, I was devoted to it. I just really loved it. And I felt a sense of meritocracy that I never really felt with acting because I knew really good actors that were unemployed and I knew less good actors that seemed to get a load of work. And I just, you know, sometimes castings don't go your way and it isn't personal and all these things I couldn't navigate or read or deal with but with that control control, I couldn't control it and I'm quite controlling Craig (laughs) (laughs) so I just loved the fact that stand-up was this thing that was mine and I wrote the stuff and I got in the car and I drove to Ashby de la Juge and I told my jokes and if they laughed they worked and that was that. And then I could build a set and I could go forward and get more gigs. And then I picked up an agent. And it all just felt like this thing that I could uh, devote myself to. And I reaped, you know, I reaped back. And I really liked that a lot. And that you built. Yeah. You, but you built this from scratch. Yeah, I felt a, a sense of pride with yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was literally like an apprenticeship, like a proper nuts and bolts, head under the bonnet apprenticeship. How long did it take... To get like the call from Live at the Apollo. Oh God, so. that's long. That takes ages. I'd say a decade even. But to start, but like the early, the the big, the big turnaround is when you get paid weekends in clubs. So like to get a Glee weekend or a Stall weekend or a Jonglers weekend when they were about. So, so is that is that like a headline slot? No, not headlining, no. but like a whole weekend. So you do Thursday night, maybe two shows on the Friday night and two shows on the Saturday night. So it's like a big wedge of money, and you go and stay in a hotel for the weekend and. That's like a, you know, nice salary. You're starting to earn some decent money then and then you do sort of clubs in the week and just starting to earn a wage. So does that mean because that's coming in and you're doing a nice weekend slot, you don't have to bomb about like Monday to Thursday doing other things? Yeah, you can sort of flex it a bit, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and in theory Um, you can write at the weekend while you're in your... Do you know what I mean? Like that's the other thing as well, that you have to make the time to turn the material over and all that stuff. 
In theory. In theory. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The amount of times comedians like, oh, I've got to write new, I've got to write some new stuff. But yeah, I mean, there's a club, there's a club sort of tradition and then there's the Edinburgh tradition. That was the other thing as well, like I sniffed out early on that I kind of had to do Edinburgh. You can't really swerve Edinburgh. It's sort of part of it. Do you think, because I was going to, that was my next thing that I wanted to sort of come to was Edinburgh. Yeah. Is it? Is it? It's uh, integral, really. Right, it has to happen. It, again, that might have changed now. I can't speak for uh, newer acts. They maybe have... I think there are people... Um, Louisa Emelian, a brilliant comic, she yeah. she never did Edinburgh. She managed to find a different route. So there are different... I mean, I think she has done Edinburgh now, but she wasn't dependent on it for her success. Mm. But I think when I was coming through, I sort of worked out you can't swerve it because it's a trade fair and that's where you pick up a lot of work and contacts and people come and look at what you're doing and saying... How was the first time you awful. went to Edinburgh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, just, just awful. I just remember walking down the Cowgate just thinking, what am I doing? And it's just so much money. I mean, these are the things that worry me, right back to what we were saying about the training, is these things become like... They be- they become dependent on people with money, you know, so then you're only getting one voice that's being represented, whether that well, be a drama school or whether that be yeah. the Edinburgh Festival or whatever, and that, that is a shame. Uh, and I do- my first Edinburgh, I had to borrow a lot of money off my father-in-law in the end, and I did pay him back. I remember one year I was lucky enough to land a lottery advert which paid for my venue, and, you know, you just sort of... You have to find that money somehow, and there's not... There's free fringe now, so there's different things that exist, but... But I, and it feels like a racket. I mean, there is a bit of you that just thinks this is a fucking racket. How have they managed to stitch me up that I'm paying best part of 10 grand for, yeah. for the venue, for the marketing, the PR, all that. And then at the end, you, you don't really know what you have to show for it. It's quite hard to define, but it's subtle. It's, a, it's like the Alexander Technique, Craig. It's subtle and it's worked as little ripples. It, it, it's, it's it's not immediate. No, it and you could have a meeting like... three years later, and someone will go, "Oh, I saw your Edinburgh show in that weird skip with a roof in the back of a car park," and you're like, "Oh my god!" And things come you off. You saw it. that. You saw that show yeah. where I was yeah. crying. <laughs> but people but, do. They, it's a trade but I fair. Think, but Carrie, I think the same can be said for acting. Yes, you know, pe- people you don't know see who's something. Watching. Who go? Do you know what, Carrie? I saw this performance in you on this one-off Channel 4 show and it was, you know, 1.1 million people saw it and yeah. you went, oh, no forgot one's ever said it. anything about it. Forgot about it. And you get a job on the back yes. of that. Yes, and when you map so- back how we all get our work, sometimes you just can't see things coming. Like one of my first sitcom jobs was a lovely woman called Emma Fryer who wrote it and I knew her from the I circuit. I love Emma oh, Fryer. Oh, she's great. I love yeah. Emma. And she... She, I bumped into her in the street one day in Soho. I hadn't seen her for, for ages. And she went, oh, I'm writing a sitcom. There's a part I'd like you to play. And you know when people say things like that to you, you just you just yeah, take yeah. it with a pinch of salt, don't you? Right? Yeah. yeah, all right, Emma. And I'd then love to. She did, and I did, and I loved it. And, you know, things just come out of nowhere mm. um, sometimes. And Edinburgh is a real example of that. Things can come out of Edinburgh that you just don't see coming. I got a radio series on the back of a sketch show that I did, or a stand-up show, and then... Radio 4 commissioner came along and said, I really enjoyed that. Could you convert it into a, a, you know, radio sitcom? And I got two series out of that. So it's just funny. It's just really odd. So I I recognised that I had to go. There was no way around it. But obviously a lot of hard work for that month of August. It's so hard. And sometimes, I'm sure, I mean, I've never done it, 
But I'm sure halfway through, or maybe before or <laughs> after, you're going, why? Oh, why you am start I doing with this? the whys in like late May, early June, because you've got to do all the <laughs> you've got to do all the previews. Once you've made that decision to do it, you've got to do all the previews. That's your summer fucked. You've just got to work a show up, write yeah. it from scratch, and then get it polished and tight so those reviewers can come really early on for the you know And spread the word. And spread the word and it all hangs on those critics co- oh God. I mean yeah. I I'm I've quite jaded about it. I mean, I don't think I would want to go back, really, because I did a fair few. But some people love it. They absolutely love it, and it's their favourite time. They do. Matt Ford... Oh, he loves loves Edinburgh. ...loves it so much. I know. A couple of years ago, he was so excited doing his (laughs) show. That's not normal. He's not normal. (laughs) He's just like a a, a beautiful, excitable child, and I adore him so much. And we went... We went very early on in the first week, and uh, he's obviously got so excited, he lost his voice. Oh, and I said, so, but he got through it. He got through his show, um, and he was still sort of in previews. And he went, Greg, I can't I've got to go back and, and have lemon and hot water. I can't. But he was fine. And do you know what? Didn't miss a show and carried on the full month and oh, did man. it and got he's, it back. He's not alone in that. We've all lost our voices up there. Yeah. But he just well, stand-ups are silly because they don't warm up like actors do. Actors oh, do warm-ups. So, they don't... Stand-ups don't do warm-ups. They're just too maverick. Can you imagine a stand-up standing in a gig room before? Ma-ma-ma-ma-me-me-me-me. They don't do... They're too cool. Yeah, in a toilet or in front of other stand-ups <laughs> no. on the bill. Yeah, it's no not going to No way, no way. They'll be having a drink and a fag out yeah, the back of the fire exit. Shit, talking crap out the back of a gig. Yeah, talk... yeah. yeah so... It is a, it's a different world. I'm always quite fascinated that it's two... They're both performers, but it's very much different tribes in a way. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Even though there's some of the... Most of the stand-ups I've worked with have slotted in really yeah, well. absolutely, and I love doing both. And, it's, and as you say, a lot of comics act now and a lot of actors have a crack at stand-up or comedy or whatever. It, you know, there's a lot of crossover... There is, and I think, you know, going back to what I said before, I think it's not just us that want to try other things and and want to gain more knowledge from other areas and learn new skills. It's accepted from an audience. Yeah, absolutely. So that's why it's it's allowed, I think. And everyone wants to be a stand-up. I mean, yoga teachers always throw a few jokes in. I'm like, bloody hell, book some gigs. (laughs) Teachers always want to do... People like the idea of... Madonna had a go, didn't she? I mean, everyone wants to do a bit of stand-up. Yeah, but I also think that, um, you know, <laughs> rock stars want to be actors. Yeah. And, and actors want to be rock stars. Absolutely. Oh, God, stand-ups want to be rock stars, big time. Well, in, in a way, they kind of they kind of are. Oh, they, they certainly were at one point when, when stand-up in the, the 90s around sort of Mary White's experience. Mm. And I think it was the first time... May not I may be wrong about this, but do you remember when Rob Newman and David Baddiel were at Wembley yeah. Arena? It's all a bit before my time, but yes, I that mean, was it's a different... just bonkers. Mm, so mad. You would be going to a you're not going to a gig, you're going to see stand-up. But there's it's so silly. I mean, like those clubs I was just talking about, often they play like a big rocking show. I remember there was one chain of clubs 
that used to play the Chemical Brothers, hey, the, hey, superstar DJs, and that was the yeah. that was the tune they'd play when the gig was about to start. So they'd crank it up, and all the stags and hens would get in their chairs, and the laser lights were like superstar DJs, here we go, <laughs> and the energy would just go boom, 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 and then just some, you know. Mild-mannered bloke would totter on and go, have you ever noticed that? And it's like you really have to adjust the expectation for what you've set them up for and what's about to happen because they are... I mean, even Live at the Apollo is mental for that. It's like the dry ice and the black keys or whatever track it is you've clicked to come on and you come out through this, you know. It's like, what a way to enter a room. It's ridiculous. And, and that is a big stage. And that's a big in stage. The Apollo. And there's high expectations, and the audience are lit because it's a telly gig. And then suddenly you just come on and start talking about pasta or knickers or washing machines or what. Do you know what I mean? And it, it's just incongruous that they're set up for a rock and roll gig, but they're actually just going to get a bit of whimsy. And that bathos is quite a weird thing to yeah. navigate, you know, in a blink. We were talking before about the fact that you built something up from scratch and you've got control over the stand-up. How is that? Because it's always fascinating me about Live at the Apollo. Yeah. Because it's sometimes... I sometimes see people on there that I think are brilliant and they don't come across well It's a funny all. one. I've always really enjoyed it. I tell you mentioning Sarah Millican. She, when I did my first one, I think she'd already done more than one. And I remember chatting to her just prior. And I remember her being really supportive and encouraging and... And gave me some really good advice, which I kept and took, which was just, you know, you do have to own it and it is your job. And you play these clubs every Saturday night for years and years and you know you can play these rooms. It's just look at it as a gig. Like, don't really think about the cameras. It's play it like you're winning and look like you're enjoying it. And and it worked, you know. Yeah. If you go out scared, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a tricky one. Well, it's again before what I was talking about, you know, your mum and Alexander Technique when I was apologising for my height. If you go into into a room, cap in hand and apologising, then... Unless that's your comedy persona, in which case, crack on, but... If that's your character and it's winning, go, go, go. Yeah, don't untangle the formula if it's working for you, but it does... It's a really exciting gig, and also the audience are totally there to have a good time. They're not there. I've always said that about stand up. Is those people who are going to watch stand up, they want to have a good night. They've often they've paid for a good night. Not Apollo audiences because they they get tickets from BBC. But if it's a club, they will meet you halfway. They're not coming out to have a shit time. They're coming out to have a good time. So they will meet you halfway. So. I mean, it, it's all very different when you're on tour and they've paid to see. Oh, them. then it's then it's a lovely thing. That's another like all oh, I was saying when the beginning yeah. when you're in the foothills and then, and then I was doing clubs for a long time and I remember an agent sort of when I changed agents she said you should be touring and I thought I said I, I don't think I I didn't know if I had an audience and she was like definitely you could you've got an audience and the first time people come to see you that's extraordinary that's really lovely. You just were so chuffed. Did you find it more relaxing or more... Was it more nerve-wracking? Both, actually. It's kind of hard to define. I think it, you don't want to let them down, so you are no. nervous. But also you're just so... There's a shorthand because they they come... They like your voice, so you've immediately... You haven't got to do that prove-it sort of stuff at the top. When you When people don't know who you are, you've got about, you know, however many seconds to prove you're funny, whereas you don't have to do that if they pay to come and see you, so you can ease in a little bit. Yeah. It's nice. And what was the pull? Because obviously 
the 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 slow and steady success of the stand up was happening when we've spoken about those steps mm. were you still uh, did you still have uh, a sort of a hand in acting at this point yeah or you, yeah you always did. I've always acted I've, like I've always just steadily had the odd acting job like a varying some years more than others you know what it's like some yeah. sometimes it can just you could just have a shit year but other times and that's the other thing with gigs you know it's not the end of the world to take them out when you're doing clubs and stuff you go oh I've got to cancel a few because I've picked up some acting work so I've always just managed to be able to sort of navigate ba- both balance the two balance the yeah. two and then uh, things definitely took a shift after I stu- did the stuff with Ricky Gervais and then I started getting more acting work so now it just feels like they've kind of both gone up together um, and I've now now pretty much do both but there were times when I didn't act much and I was earning all my money from the from stand up and would you have changed anything no I don't think so I th- it's always I've always said it's kind of weird if I had been more successful straight out of drama school I definitely wouldn't have become a comic and I'm really glad I'm a stand up I really like it Carrie Godleman, this is just lovely. I've absolutely <laughs> loved. It's so weird, isn't it, podcast? Because there's you just talk about yourself for an hour and then go. I know. Is am I an egomaniac or has this been three free therapy? What is it? What what is it? I don't know. <laughs> Kerry, just before we go, and I think the audience of this podcast know that I'm very honest um, about what I talk about and who I talk to. Um, and I never really talk about work, specific jobs that much, especially with, with actors. Um, but, and I've, I know, you know this anyway, because I did message you about it, even though this is the first time that we've spoken. Your performance in adult material that was on Channel 4 um, last year was so extraordinary. And, and I, I am a big fan of, of your stand-up and your work. But you were doing stuff there that I hadn't seen you do before. Well, I was so excited by that script and when I read it and when I got the chance to play that character. Mm. And I think it was because I knew that I'd never had a chance to do that stuff before. I'd never played a part like that before that had that amount of complexity and that and the humour, the, the, you know, the duality of humour and that she was very intelligent and cerebral she was a barrister and I just I'd never had a chance to play anyone that complex and funny and interesting before and I was so giddy you know I was so excited to play her but it's so interesting that you say that because it's like that you and we all know what it's like it's like well um she does that, and that's what she yeah. does very well. He does that, that's yes. what he does very well. Never the twain shall meet. Never because the actually, twain. Actually, wait, wait a minute. If you just turn this around and look at it from a different angle, you'll realise that they can kind of do that as well, and they can do both. So it's yeah. all about being given the chance. And Absolutely. I'm just, I'm You're not so often thrilled. given the chance. So it's it's really exciting. And that script blew me away, and Hayley was amazing, and it was just such a kind of... Uh, complex, rigorous story. And know. daring. I thought it was and a really very daring. daring piece of storytelling. The fact yeah. that... And it, of course it was Channel 4. Of course yeah. it had to be Channel 4. Because it reminded me of 
of what Channel 4 do and do so well, the old school Channel 4 values that are going to go, do you know what? Yeah, we are going to tell this story. And it so needed to be told. That story had to be told. And that script had been in development for nearly a decade. They'd had so much trouble getting it away because of the content. And it, you know, it's prevalent and it's so everywhere. And yet they couldn't get a drama about it away. And it was, it was such a needed tale to be told. You know, I was so chuffed to be a part of it. Huge. Female powerhouse production yeah. dynamic director yeah. producer deal. I mean, Everybody honestly, Craig, I've never done that before. I've never had a female director, female lead, uh, female writer, female producer, first AD, it, it, DP. I mean, it, it really was a female it casting director. It, yeah. yeah. I mean, it shouldn't be, but is a very rare thing. And that, you know, should really not still be true. No, but sadly it is, but more people need to um, open those doors and give people those chances and roll that dice and look, incredible things come from it. Yeah, no, it was an exciting gig, that one, without doubt. Um, Kerry, just before we go, we've got to talk about getting the chances, being given the opportunity, and you've been given the opportunity to lead a series now for Acorn TV, and this isn't really what we do on the podcast but i think it's important uh being given uh, being given the opportunity because we've spoken about your journey um can you talk to me about whitstable pearl i on i never foresaw playing a lead i mean it was such a lovely surprise and again came out of this pandemic mm. you know because it just sort of came out of nowhere and we shot it in the lockdown and she's a lovely part, just a really lovely character that this woman called Julie Wassamer has written these books. There's about eight of them. They're like mystery whodunits. I don't really... Do you read whodunits? It's a whole world. Oh, it's a thing. Yeah, no, I don't. It's a massive thing. It's like a whole genre of passion that people are so devoted to. And I, now that I've dipped my toe into that world, I realise it's quite an honour to play a detective in a in a crime Absolutely. drama. She was... A lot of fun to play. And again, sort of echoes what you were saying about getting to use humour and drama. Because the nature, like, I think that's why maybe the casting was right for me. Because she was kind of, it's not like a comedy, it's a drama. But she's quite irreverent and um, I felt at home playing her. And Whitstable's a lovely place and Howard Charles was a lovely actor to work with. And Francis Barber played my mum. And it just was a really lovely gig. Just in every scene. I've never been in every scene before, Craig. Did you feel um, pressure on your shoulders yeah. to be it was number scary. one? Yeah. yeah, it was really scary. And we kept having running jokes with Howard. He was like, oh, number one, you can't do that. You're number one. <laughs> I was like, shut up, shut up. Um, but and when we started shooting, I was a bit overwhelmed. When I saw the schedule and my you know, my schedule specifically. I was like, yeah. oh, my God, I'm in every day. I just don't know how I'm going to do this. Um, but once you start, it's that creative genie. Once it gets in and you're, you you start to get in the flow and in the zone and I started to love her and love the town and love the stories and love the character and I was just charmed by it in the end and then I was just completely there, you know. And once you get onto that sort of treadmill it, it, you know you have to sort of get up to speed and then you go all oh, yeah. right okay it's this i'm, I'm it's like a muscle this, you do this just, is the machine and it comes yeah. in and, it, and you i was build. really 
pleased with that. I'd never had I'd never had any experience of that. And I remember saying to a couple of mates, I'm I, I'm worried I'm out of my depths. I'm scared that I'm out of my depths. And um, you know, they were really supportive and just said you'll be fine. And one day at a time, and stay steady and just connect with your colleagues and you just have to go lean into that stuff we were talking about earlier don't you yeah. all those skills and tools and also you know we worry about that and there's always that sort of internal worry whenever we take apart but the thing is you spoke about being given the opportunity you've been given this opportunity you've shown people that you can be trusted with this part so that all the bigwigs believe that you can do it so therefore, why do but we? You've got to believe it, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, you've I know. got to believe it. it. I just—I thought it was a wind-up when they first offered it. I was like, no, they've made a mistake. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's hard to shake that imposter syndrome. But you—you you know, if you're surrounded by brilliant people, and also going back to what you were saying about just the gratitude. If if you're if when in doubt, if the focus is on the gratitude, then you can turn it around. I was just so grateful for the job and the opportunity and the experience. It was just such a delight to, to be working with lovely people. And also the fact that you've earned it. And without, you know, with, I'm, and without being a dick, to go, yeah, actually, I do have slight imposter syndrome, but then again, if I really think about it, yeah, yeah I've, I've, earned, I've earned my place yeah. here. you have to counsel your way out of it, yeah. There's a, there's a nice balance, isn't there? Yeah, there has to be absolutely. a nice balance for yourself yeah. as, well, as well as others. Yeah, definitely. No, is it is exciting? It is exciting to be number one, number one on the call sheet. <laughs> <laughs> it's all gone to my head, Craig. You've you've changed in this hour, Kelly. Oh, I've changed. I will never changed. be a number three or four or ten what? again. <laughs> it's bullshit. And what is that? So is this uh, is what six eight episodes? Six episodes, six one hour episodes that are on Acorn TV. Yes. And wh- when's that starting? Has it got a TX? Twenty. 24th of May, they go out. Okay. Um, yeah. Right. I'm looking forward to it already. Brilliant. Kerry Goddaman, loads of love, my Thank friend. Thank you Take so care. much. Yes, You're and you. Very bloody welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. And another episode is done. Can you hear that? Yeah, I think someone's reversing. Uh, yeah, they're still going. They're still going. How fantastic is Kerry Godleman? I'm so chuffed. It's funny with Kerry. It feels, and we've never met, it feels like uh, we should be friends. Or not, 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 like, not in a weird way, but it feels like sitting down and talking to a friend who you haven't seen for ages, even though she's not. I hope that came across because she's just great company. Um, and yeah, do check out her new show uh, called Whitstable Pearl. I'm certainly going to be doing that. And look, we've had loads of new subscribers of late. So if you're working your way back through the catalogue, just, just you, look, take your time. Don't worry. There's no rush. There's no order either. Somebody messaged me on social media the other day saying, oh, I don't really know where to start. You start where you want. Start where you want. If, you, if you're if you still getting over the uh, the frenzy that was Line of Duty, then go back. There's Martin, there's Vicky, there's Ada, there's Neil Morrissey. Um, there's Tony Pitts, there's Maya Sondes. We had pretty much everybody on from that show. If you haven't seen Line of Duty, 
you know, maybe start with these episodes, go back and watch it. Uh, Lenny James, of course, if you're a fan of Save Me, you've seen Kerry and Save Me, go and listen to Lenny's episodes. Maybe you like your music. We've got Nile Rogers. We've got Gaz Coombs from Supergrass. You like your poetry. We've got uh, our kid. We've got uh, wonderful artist Pete McKee. Um, maybe you want to go back and re-listen to some episodes. I know that people have uh, rediscovered the Joe Trasini episode uh, from last week, which I think is essential listening. It really is. Um, maybe you want to listen to an episode with somebody who you don't know, you're not aware of. May I point you in the direction of the incredible Michael Balligan episode from the very start of, of, uh, of this podcast back in the day. I think we've been going five years now, four or five. Oh my God, I can't believe it. Look, yeah, thank you so much for downloading and subscribing. Uh, give us a shout over on social media. We always uh, like to have a chat with you. Um, send us any thoughts. Maybe you've got some guest ideas. They're always welcome. I can't guarantee it, but they're always welcome. We are going to get back out on the road soon with actual in-person interview. I'm going to be looking into the whites of people's eyes when they tell me what has been going on with them, and I can't wait. Uh, I think it's going to take a bit of getting used to. We are also talking about the possibility of seeing all you lot with a tour at some point. The tour that we had planned and we'd had so many venues sort of booked and ready and raring to go, but obviously we had to pull the plug. But it is going to happen. We are going to get back out there. And it'll be wonderful to see you all. So until such time, we'll have to make do with another episode next Thursday, won't we? So until then, thank you so much for downloading and subscribing. I've been Craig Parkinson. He's been producer Griff. And this has been the Two Shot Podcast. You take care. I'll see you next week. Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. Yeah.